Welcome to the Drop Time Report. Turn up the volume and listen to amazing stories about big bucks and the hunters who harvested them. Here is your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen. On this week's episode of the Drop Time Report, we're going to have on Phil Holcomb. Phil is a bow hunter from the great state of Pennsylvania. What makes his story unique is the fact that he only owns a little bit over eight acres and consistently finds himself uh, chasing mature whitetails. This past fall, he killed a buck in Pennsylvania that scored about 135 inches uh, for Pennsylvania. <coughs> Excuse me, that is saying something. Pennsylvania uh, just isn't known for enormous bucks. There's a lot of hunting pressure, but Phil seems to put it together uh, most years. So we're going to talk about his habitat improvements, uh, what he's done to draw deer onto his property, uh, stand location, and those kind of things. Before we get Phil on the phone, I'd like to thank my sponsors, uh, title sponsor Redneck Blinds, 4th Arrow Camera Arms, Windscent, Morel Targets, Grim Reaper Broadheads, Illinois Connection Outfitters, Huntworth, Outdoorsman's, and Wilderness Athlete. If you're into nutrition or need to lose a few pounds, uh, take a look at Wilderness Athlete's nutritional products. Visit their website at wildernessathlete.com. Enter DROP10 at the checkout and you'll get 10% off your order. Now let's get Phil on the phone and learn a little bit about chasing bucks on small properties. Welcome to the show, Phil. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Uh, congratulations on uh, the buck you killed this past fall there in Pennsylvania. Uh, I know from growing up in Michigan and hunting in Pennsylvania that uh, decent bucks don't grow on trees in those parts of the world. That's for sure. It uh, it can be hard to come across one like that. So, so this buck you killed this past fall, um, you were telling me earlier he scored about 135, which, you know, someone in Iowa, that doesn't sound very big. But in your area, you know, what's the average buck? 110 inches that's killed in, a, in the deer season? What do you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a buck in the in the three-year kind of age range in and of itself is is still somewhat of a rarity, even though we're we're getting a lot better with that. Um, each and every year, it seems like more and more people are kind of uh, hopping on board with, um, you know, giving, giving more bucks uh, uh, an opportunity to uh, to make it to their uh, next couple, you know, the next year class at least anyway. Um, so pretty typically uh, a, a pretty good buck is a, you know, 100 to 115-inch uh, three-year-old. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, 135-inch uh, uh, five-year-old deer is, is a pretty uh, pretty exceptional buck in this area. Now, what makes your story even more unique is that you're not managing a 500-acre parcel. You know, uh, you're you're managing eight acres. Uh, so kind of explain, there's lots of us out here that, you know, don't have huge pieces of property. We don't have deep pockets. We're average Joes. We have 10, 15 acres to hunt. Kind of explain your strategy for killing mature whitetails on a smaller parcel. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that's that's a, a, a great segue because 
honestly, there's a lot of people with, um, you know, some of those smaller to even micro-sized pieces of property um, that I think quite often it just goes goes overlooked. Um, you know, either uh, ah, it's not worth hunting that, it's only X number of acres, you know, it's a small small little uh, little piece or, oh, I have, you know, 10 or 12 acres, but, you know, I can't manage deer on that level. And, um, and, and that's understandable. It's a lot of times it's, you know, it's a careful, um, balancing act between, um, you know, managing deer, managing habitat and just, uh, improving and manipulating, um, you know, your habitat to basically, um, you know, increase the hunting potential and the opportunity. Um, you know, so there's, uh, there's a lot of ways, um, that, that smaller pieces, um, can be improved and manipulated to create extremely quality hunting experiences. So, so um, highlight maybe, uh, you know, if, if you had three things to do or five things to do, these are the ones you would do, you know, this, these are the most important things to do to increase your odds of success. Yeah, uh, number one, and I think this goes from, uh, you know, uh, uh, from one acre to infinite number of acres is realistic goals. Uh, you've got to manage your own goals and expectations. You've got to understand that, um, you know, in, in no way can you take, um, you know, any particular property from, you know, zero to hero, uh, you know, overnight. Um, and you also have to understand that you're still, you're still kind of bound by, um, what your local kind of area is capable of, capable of producing. Like, sure. You know, there, there, there may be a ceiling there, no matter what, no matter what you do, no matter, no matter how many acres you have and, and what your, your program is, you may have a ceiling. Um, getting a, getting a handle on that and, and kind of tempering, um, you know, your, your goals and aspirations with reality a little bit will go a long way. So if you have a small piece, you, you really have to curb your, uh, your expectations, um, and manage them to be as realistic as possible. Um, you, you just don't want to, um, you know, get into the mindset, oh, if I do X, Y, and Z every year, I'm going to be killing booners. That's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. But you still can, um, Put in some time, some effort, some work, and create a quality hunting experience for yourself, your friends, your family, whoever else um, you want to, you know, get involved with. So that's where I tend to start is, um, you know, find out those those goals um, and and get them kind of aligned with reality, and then from there, you're pretty much always guaranteed success as long as your your goals align with reality. Um, kind of the the next step in the uh, in the process is probably um, being able to to identify where your property fits in to the larger scheme of the local deer herd. Um, is your property, uh, you know, the type of place that is uh, is just a pass through? Um, you know, you kind of get deer infrequently or even frequently, but they're just moving from point A to point B. Um, is your property a part of a destination food source? Um, is it the destination food source? Is it a part of cover? Is it a part of the bedding? Um, you know, where does it fit into that overall pattern? Um, and then once you kind of figure that out, 
you're able to, to, to make a plan to make the improvements and the changes and the manipulations to kind of set up that, um, that hunting opportunity. Because um, on a smaller piece, you know, unfortunately, we, we aren't really managing deer as much as we're um, just kind of managing um, the hunting potential of a property. Um, you know, you still are, as a hunter, managing your trigger control. Um, but, <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Right. Unfortunately, you know, your neighbors may not, which is fine. They want to, uh, harvest, uh, bucks that don't necessarily meet, um, you know, uh, your specific goals and it's illegal and they're ethical about it. Then that's just what it is. There's no change in that. And you shouldn't have, um, an antagonistic relationship with your neighbors, especially with a small property. Because with a small property, you are you're always subject to what's happening onto your on your neighbor's property. So, um, you know, it's pretty easy to get shut down pretty quickly with a smaller piece by your neighbors. So, you know, you want to have the best relationships you can with your neighbors. But um, at any any rate, um, you just you have to figure out what where where your piece fits in, and then from there you can make that plan to uh, to make the changes make the improvements, um, and manipulate that deer movement in a way that stacks the odds in your favor. Now, you had told me earlier that you were able to uh, pull does onto your property because of a small food plot, and that kind of set the table, so to speak, for killing a decent buck. How big is your food plot? Uh, my food plot's only a third of an acre. Um, I run a kind of a, a strip strip plotting uh, method. So I have, uh, two different types of plantings planted within the same plot, but they're just, they're in strips and I rotate them, um, every year. And, um, what it allows me to do is to plant, um, a wide variety, diverse, um, kind of mix of, of, of different, uh, types of, of plants that allows for attraction to peak, um, from in most years, give or take, end of September all the way through to like end of January. Um, okay. So basically what I'm doing is I'm looking at um, trying to set a focal point for the local doe groups during the fall and the winter of the year, which coincidentally is hunting season, which is yeah. when I care the most about making sure they're focused on and keying in on a feature on my property. How many years have you been planning food plots? Uh, on that piece of property. Plot. On that piece of property was 2007. Um, I've been planting food plots since 2003, um, but 2007 was the first year um, that I broke ground, so to speak, on, on that particular piece. Now, was it a game changer for you? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> when I first started hunting that property, it was, um, it was pretty apparent that it was like uh, – uh, a pass-through type of, of uh, property, um, and it was relatively infrequent. Um, it was uh, the type of property that you, when you hunted, like, you either saw a deer or you didn't, um, and more often than not, you didn't. I think the first year that I bow hunted that property, um, I think I saw six deer total, and I hunted it. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, over-hunted it, but I hunted it enough times that... 
<laughs> Should have been some, some higher deer. A little more than six that. deer, huh? A little more than six you were hoping yeah. for? Yeah. Right. A little more than six, uh, none of which were a buck. Um, and, uh, but then I had, uh, you know, I had been running some trail cameras uh, on the property, and I started to kind of figure out, well, <clears throat> there definitely there were bucks in the area. There were good bucks in the area. Um, you know, what were they doing? Why were they there? When they were there? Um, and, and that type of thing. And then, uh, from there, I just kind of started to figure out, um, where the property kind of fit in. And, uh, uh, as it kind of works out, um, there's, uh, kind of a couple large doe bedding areas, like bedding areas that are frequented by the, by the local doe groups. Um, and, uh, they're not kind of fortunate for me. They're not actually on my property, but they're close enough that, um, that it works out. Um, actually, if I did have them betting on my property, it would probably be a problem, um, because it would be difficult to, to access, uh, stand locations with that many eyes, ears, and noses kind of laying around during daylight hours. So I want them close and betting close enough during the day. Um, and, uh, but not necessarily right on, uh, and having that kind of the food plot as the focal point, like the, um, kind of the focus, um, of their interest in the property. Um, I get, I get the deer that kind of, they're on their way back to their bedding area, um, stop in, kind of top off with the, you know, the, the food plots kind of like the south, you know, the, uh, uh, dessert, you know, in the, in okay. the morning. Uh, when they're heading back into bed to kind of top off with a highly attractive food source and then, and then move through. Um, and then likewise in the evening, it's kind of like, it's like the, the appetizer, the salad beforehand. Uh, so they'll, they'll swing through, uh, in the afternoon and, uh, and, and early evening top off and then head off to the, the main destination food sources up over the hill. Um, and likewise, what happens quite frequently is that midday feeding. Um, uh, they've been in bed, you know, they'll, they'll come back, um, bed down for a few hours, uh, kind of chew the cud, um, go through their di- digestive process and, uh, decide, Hey, I need to, I need to get a little bite to eat. And, um, you know, I've created and, and enhanced kind of the, the cover around the food plot, the overall kind of shape, and size and flow of the food plot is such that I feel that they're comfortable enough. Uh, they're bedded close enough and they're comfortable enough coming to it that they'll, they'll feed um, kind of the, those midday hours uh, in the food plot and then push back into the bedding area. Um, so have you created like a what? staging area then? I mean, have you created a staging I area? I do. <laughs> I do. And that's actually, uh, that's actually how my buck this fall, um, uh, approach the plot. Um, I'm also, I'm really a huge believer in mock scrapes. Um, you know, when I first really got into bow hunting, um, scrapes were like the big thing and everybody was, uh, hunting scrapes and mock scrapes and how to make mock scrapes. And, and then seemed like a few years later, it, it was like scrapes are over 85% of all, you know, scrape usage happens at, under the cover of darkness and da, 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 and all this stuff. But, um, I really, I, I think that 
may provide an opportunity um, that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people probably are, are kind of overlooking uh, because of some of that, that research that came out. Um, you know, I always looked at it as I hunt an area not because there are scrapes there, but I hunt an area for the reason that the scrapes are there. Um, not all scrapes are created equal, um, and being able to identify, um, you know, which ones, uh, you know, kind of warrant attention and which ones are probably the ones that are, you know, being used under cover of darkness, um, that's a big thing. But for me, creating the mock scrapes, where they are, how I have them positioned, how they relate to the to the flow of movement across my property, through my property, um, basically allows um, quite often for, for these scrapes to be used by mature bucks with plenty of shooting light on the horizon. The buck I killed this year was no different. Um, he, uh, I had one picture of this deer um, in the middle of July, pretty much walked through the food plot, um, didn't hang around, didn't stop, didn't eat, didn't, didn't do anything, just literally walked through the food plot in front of one of my cameras and uh, didn't get him on camera again until October 17th, I believe it was. Um, and that was on a mock scrape, and that was with about 10 to 15 minutes of shooting light left on the horizon. Um, okay. And then the night that I got a shot at him, he uh, he moved up into um, off of a kind of a steep side hill through some cover into uh, my um, kind of little staging area. Um, and because of the way I have it set up, he can't visually check the food plot. Um, he's generally on the downwind edge of the food plot, so he can scent check it a little bit, and also where the scrape location is. The way he came up, he entered that um, that staging area, uh, kind of surveyed everything. You could tell he was interested in, in making sure the coast was clear. Um, and then uh, he basically had two choices of entry into the food plot, which would um, kind of put him right to one of the mock scrapes, the one that I had the, the pictures of him on. Um, and uh, he, he opted to take um, the one trail. Uh, and uh, as soon as he kind of came up through that trail that I had made into the food plot, he started hooking to the left, which was taking him right to that mock scrape. And I was able to get a shot. So um, that was uh, critical, you know, kind of critical importance. Uh, he understood uh, from living in the area where, um, you know, where does tend to congregate. Um, he apparently knew, you know, uh, knew of the, the scrapes in the area and was able to, um, you know, kind of figure out that uh, that was a good way of keeping his, uh, you know, keep keeping his presence known in the area as well as being able to keep tabs on what was happening. Um, you know, so they, uh, that was a big part of it. So, I mean, it was kind of, um, the full, uh, the full plan, uh, you know, the, the travel corridors kind of bringing the deer in from neighboring properties, the staging area, the way the staging area is set up. Um, so as to give them a kind of, uh, a false sense of, uh, you know, of, a of, of an advantage, to survey the food plot with their nose, but not necessarily with their eyes. So they're not able to get that full, you know, 
uh, see, smell, hear, kind of check down, um, they still have to commit to some level to fully survey the food plot. So okay. um, just enough okay. where they feel comfortable. I, I, I was able to give the, the food plot a smell. Okay, let's let's ease up there. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I killed him on October 25th. So, okay, so heading um, right into the rut, close to the rut. Right, right. You're getting into that period where those mature, a lot of those mature deer are starting to get on their feet. They're starting to, to expand their their typical traveling. Um, they're starting to really want to keep tabs on what the does are doing. They're very aggressively checking and making scrapes and rubs and other signs. Um, so it was kind of like the, the perfect opportunity. We had a good front coming in. Uh, we had a, a little bit of a wind change um, uh, and a change in wind speed um, that particular night. Um, uh, the wind had kind of laid down a little bit from the from the day before um, and changed direction just a little bit. And uh, I think that that um, that buck was was really starting to to uh, focus in on my property, my food plot, as um, being a place where. He was going to want to make sure he was there <laughs> and, uh, and monitoring what was going on with those does that were using that plot because he knew in the coming days it was going to be go time and he needed to be the one that was there to capitalize. Now, how many days a week or how often are you hunting the property, you know, in an effort to not push, you know, put too much pressure on it? <laughs> yeah, so... That was um, that was my, I want to say that was my third. That was my third sit, um, and uh, so I I kind of I have a I have some, I guess uh, somewhat radical uh, thoughts <laughs> on on how uh, how you can hunt or overhunt a property. Um, so this particular property being small. Um, the amount of work that I do on the property, um, generally it's, you know, it's outside of season, but when it comes to some of my food plot plantings. We're getting, we're getting close to season. Um, the local doe groups are very, 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 very accustomed to and habituated to my presence, my <laughs> scent, my ground scent. You know, I don't think that they're overly cautious of me. Um, but all that being said, I take during hunting season, um, I take scent control pretty, pretty seriously. I have a kind of regiment that I follow. Um, I do everything possible to just not have, um, you know, any type of scent, um, at all. Um, it's not possible to be a hundred percent scent free. Um, knowing that, um, you know, I don't go too incredibly overboard but i do i do practice uh pretty tight scent control regimen um you know uh the way my property lays the topography the way it sets up um with the prevailing wind i have a particular tree that if i have a wind with west in it i can generally hunt it undetected um and i've had years where i've hunted, you know, probably, um, 16, 17 sits out of wow. that one tree. 
and uh, not had a problem getting a shot at deer, not have, you know, didn't have deer sightings drop off rapidly, uh, anything like that. Uh, but it all goes back know. to you are what I would say you're an architect of that piece of property. You do everything right. You dot your I's, you cross your T's. You know exactly what you can get away with and when you can get away with it. You're not cutting corners all the way down to how you plant the food plot. You know, everything is just thought of in advance, which I think it's important to note that when you're talking to a small property, everything has to be right because there's no room for error. That, and that's, that's a hundred percent accurate. Um, definitely there's, there's definitely a very, very small margin of error when it comes to small, small properties. And believe me, I've, I've had plenty of time <laughs> to, to find out how quickly, um, you know, you can undo what, what took you several, you know, weeks or months or whatever of, uh, of work and preparing and planning, you know, so it, it, it definitely is something that you've got to, you've got to put a lot of thought into a lot of planning and you've got to execute on it. Um, not every property is the same, so you can't cookie cutter, you know, just manufacture, um, you know, these, these key ingredients or, or plans or processes and, 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 you know, mass produce them and put them out there and say, if you do the following steps in this order, you're, you're going to be set up. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of, I do a lot of things, uh, to understand the wind on my property. Um, I take smoke bombs, you know, like, I don't know if fireworks are, are legal or illegal in, in Michigan or whatever, but they're, they're legal in Pennsylvania. And when you get anywhere close to one of our borders with another state, you have fireworks stores and they typically have these huge bundles and packages of smoke bombs, colored smoke bombs. You know, you can get them, you know, like, uh, some of them, you get like 50 or 60 of them for a couple of bucks. Right. Wow. Um, I take those, I'll take those smoke bombs and uh, I'll take a, you know, a number 10, uh, tin can or a can, you know, empty tin can from the recycling, whatever. And, go out to a tree stand, put that smoke bomb in there, light it, drop it in that can, put it on on the platform, you know, and either stand up there with it, depending on what the wind's doing, because if the smoke's, uh, you know, blowing right up in your face all the time, you can't see anything anyway. Otherwise, I climb right down and look at it. See what what is okay. it doing? What's it telling me? You know, where's, where's that wind going? Um, you know, prevailing wind direction is one thing. Uh, thermals are another thing um, where you can find, you know, not every property is going to have it, but there are places where uh, you can get prevailing wind and thermals in a given time of day where your scent um, is basically going straight up with the thermal, going straight away from the ground, and then the uh, prevailing wind is taking it away. And in those cases, when you can find those locations, you can hunt 360 degrees. All you have to do is be super careful about your ground scent to your entry and your exit to your stance. If you can find those places, you can generally get in there and hunt and not worry about being winded. The biggest problem is going to be eventually there might be a deer that crosses your, your entrance 
um, or even exit hours later and, and makes that association. Um, to me, I'm lucky enough I have a tree that on certain uh, winds at certain times of day, the way the thermals act, I'm not, uh, chances of me having a deer um, wind me is next to nothing. However, I make sure my boots, my legs, and my entry trails are set up. You know, I, I uh, spray down with all the scent killing stuff, you know, the showering, the washing, the storage, um, airing out repeatedly, et cetera, to make sure anything that I'm wearing that comes in contact with the ground or vegetation, which honestly, if it's in my control, there's not going to be any vegetation I can come in contact with because I'm going to have those trails cleared out. Um, and, uh, basically I make it so that, you know, unless a deer <laughs> cuts across that trail just seconds after I've gone through there, I personally believe they feel that whatever they detect odor wise, just from observing them, they feel like it's, it's older scent, you know, like I sure. said, you can't hundred yeah. percent eliminate, you can't, but they do pick up something and they go, Hmm, there might be a brief pause. A look around, a little bit, nose, you know, nose lifted up into the wind, and that's it. They keep right on going. To me, I think they just, when they encounter that, they feel that it's much older and it's not a threat. Um, and in particular, on my property, I feel like they've encountered that from me a million times, and it's never yeah. once threatened them. So they just carry on, you know? That's, now, that's that one box, thing... I- Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) That buck, you know, that, 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 that buck that's coming through during the rut or whatever, he might pick that up, find it, you know, alarming or something, but I still feel that it's just, it's old. It, it, it's minimized to the point where it's like, yeah, I've encountered that, you know, and it's not been a threat. So I'll continue on. It's not going to change anything. It's a lot different than, you know, completely, uh, you know, <laughs> just stinking like a, 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 a human standing directly upwind 15 yards from a, from a buck, you know, a mature buck. He's just going to, like, there's a difference. And they understand that difference. And that's the other thing, too. Um, a lot of people, you know, I think just, just have this opinion or idea that, like, you got to treat all of this with such, you know, kid gloves um, you know, uh, deer encounter people, at least where I live, um, in a, in a lot of where I hunt deer encounter people all the time. If they ran to another County, every time they encountered a person, you know, they'd still be running there. They'd never stop. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I agree. There's a, there's a certain amount of tolerance. There's a, they also understand and perceive predatory behavior. Okay. So walking upright with no care in the world, not making eye contact with the deer, most of the deer will just stand there and watch you, watch you go by. <laughs> if you're sneaking and slinking and you're looking at them in their eyes, um, they go, that's a predator. That's something trying to kill me. I should get away from that. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah, so, I agree. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of things that go into it that you just have to, you have to pick up on the, the little little details, little nuances of what's happening in your area. But, um, you know, I think on a small property, 
you do have to be very careful, very calculated, and planned, you know, for how, uh, you know, you, you're going to hunt it um, and how you're going to set it up and all that type of things. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite to the level that some people want to take it and say, like, I don't ever enter my property after August. Well, you know, you might be missing out on being able to correct some food plot issues you might have been having clear up until middle of September that ultimately will be paying dividends in November and December for you. Um, and what did you do? You didn't do anything. You didn't scare a single deer. <laughs> you didn't keep a single deer from coming to your property during hunting season. You know, I, it just, you got to understand how the deer operate and, and um, you know, how, how you can, can make those things work for you. I do think that on smaller properties, just like you said, uh, they have a higher tolerance of seeing humans and smelling humans uh, than, say, a big wood, mm-hmm. big woods buck that's living out in the middle of nowhere, you know, or <laughs> yeah. on a piece oh, yeah, of sure. gr- groom property. Um, in closing, yeah. in closing, kind of talk about, you know, what are your favorite food plots to plant on these small parcels? Um, so. When it comes to smaller food plots on small pieces, you know, um, more often than not, you're staying away from your corn and your soybeans, your large grains and stuff like that. Small plots um, with with the, the larger grains can just, you know, you either have deer densities are too high, they don't let them get out of the ground, um, or um, say they do and they let them set, uh, set, set feed and and you do get some grain, uh, they're gone overnight once the deer turn on to them. So they're usually kind of out the window. Like that's kind of your, your bigger destination, uh, food sources, couple acre type of field. Um, so what you're left with is, is kind of your small grains, um, your cereal grains. So rye, wheat, oats, um, your, your clovers, uh, both annuals and perennials. Uh, your brassicas, so you know your your uh, turnips, your radishes, sugar beets, um, your rape, um, and uh, and also other legumes um, like uh, uh, peas. I mean, you can still plant soybeans, um, just not uh, in the same type of uh, intention that you would um, for trying to uh, to grow grain. That will attract the deer in in the late season. Um, so there's a lot of options. There's a lot of options. Um, you know, you can uh, you can go the route of uh, you know buying a, um, a a blend off of off of the shelf. Um, personally, uh, I don't I don't tend to go that route. Um, I have some specific types of uh, um, of blends that I like to use that I've, um, you know, learned from people that, uh, uh, you know, were way smarter than I am a long time ago. I've adapted them, turned them into, um, you know, different mixes that I like to use. Um, but like I said, there, you know, you, you can plant a lot of things, um, and have it work. The thing is, you just need to understand that, um, you know, if you're, you're, you know, you have a small property, you're trying to make it attractive to deer. Uh, you should be trying to make it attractive to deer during hunting season, especially, you know, if you're a small property 
hunter. <laughs> you know, yeah. If you're planting something that's attracting them, uh, you know, during the warm season uh, and doesn't really provide much for you in the fall um, and winter, uh, it's it's no good. So, um, you know, uh, I I like cereal. I like a kind of a mix of, um, uh, like I said, I plant in strips. So I'll have a strip of um, uh, cereal grains and legumes. So uh, I tended to go with winter rye, winter winter wheat, um, oats, and uh, I like to mix in some clovers, um, a, uh, a, sh- a kind of shorter-lived perennial, like a medium red, um, and uh, some annuals, like crimson in particular, bursine. There's a relatively new variety of bursine that's uh, been coming out uh, not too... Uh, you know, not too long ago, um, it's uh, frosty bursine. Supposed to be a lot more cold tolerant. Um, okay. Haven't gotten to try it yet. Looking forward to it though. Um, but anyway, I get those those uh, uh, cereal grains, those clovers, and uh, like I said, legumes. Um, which clovers are? But you also have some of the larger seeded ones, like uh, like um, Austrian winter peas or forage peas, as well as um, uh, soybeans. Um, and I like to plant that mix, uh, very, very late August to early September. So a lot of people are going soybeans, planting them in August or September. You're never going to get any pods. Well, that's the point. I'm not planting them to get pods. I'm planting them for that green forage, um, you know, in that early part. Uh, they're kind of a candy crop. Um, and it'll also help take some of the, uh, the browsing pressure off of some of the other things I'm planting uh, by offering them something as attractive as those soybeans. You know, you might get those soybeans to, to you know, three to six inches tall, um, you know, before the either the deer find them or it gets too cold and it shuts them down. But, um, you know, I, I like that high-diversity mix in uh, the cereal grains and legumes. Um, and then I also tend to plant a uh, brassica mix, which... Um, you know, I kind of have a backbone of um, the purple top turnip, the groundhog, forage radish, and uh, dwarf essence rape. Um, but I'll also throw in some other varieties in there, just either out of curiosity or um, just because I like to have, you know, a high-diversity mix. I think, um, you know, a lot of times people, when they think of a small food plot, they go, you know, they're like, oh, I got to plant as much of one thing as possible in order for there to be enough of it to last the deer through fall and winter. But deer are uh, preferential selective browsers, so they're, if you have a variety, um, you know, let's say in that third acre, um, if you said, I'm going to plant a third acre of purple top turnips, um, they might get they might get eaten to the ground um, before the hunting even gets good. In third acre, and you say, "Well, I'm going to plant a whole bunch of other stuff, and I'm only going to have, you know, let's just say a fraction of those purple top turnips available." How are those purple top turnips going to last, you know, as long? The thing is, is you're giving them all that variety, all that diversity. And There's always something in there. So when, Correct. There's when one yeah. thing 
is at its peak. Another thing isn't quite at its peak, and they and they they know that, and they seek out the thing that is most attractive at that time. They'll eat that. Now, obviously, in your extremely high deer density areas, that's not going to work because if it's green and it's growing, they're going to mow it. Um, but you know, in an area with a pretty average deer density, um, you can increase the uh, lifespan of a small food plot exponentially by making it as diverse as possible. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Now, w- one last thing. Uh, this buck you shot, he, it was 135 inches. It's not a fluke that you killed him. I want you know listeners to realize uh, you've had other encounters with even bigger bucks. Um, you know, mm-hmm. killing good bucks on small properties has kind of become your niche, your forte, and something you're uh, known for. Yeah, I don't know if I'm necessarily known for it yet, but uh, I'll <laughs> I'll take it. Um, yeah, I uh, you know it, on on a, a small piece of property, you can't, especially if you're going to focus on one particular you know small piece of property. Um, you're not every year; it's not going to happen. Um, you know, you can ask. You, uh, you all you can hope for is opportunities, um, and whether you make them happen or not, you know. Uh, it just the way it is. So, um, you know, I was fortunate enough this year, I made it happen. Um, you know, back in 2013, I killed another, um, pretty good buck for our area, uh, a little over 120 inches, uh, as a, as a three and a half year old eight point. So he was kind of, a um, you know, a little bit exceptional for his age class. Um, and, uh, that happened to be, that was a buck that the first time I ever saw him was, that morning when I got a shot at him. Um, but, uh, I don't know, I've, I've, uh, I've missed one that was, uh, pretty exceptional, um, deer, um, you know, pushed pretty close to 160. Um, and, uh, um, I've had a lot of encounters with, uh, Pope and Young caliber bucks, um, you know, over the years. Um, you know, in, uh, in 2016, I had an encounter with a buck that, um, and, and it's kind of funny. I killed my buck this year on October 25th, uh, October 24th of, uh, 2016. I had, um, I had a buck of similar stature, uh, and basically I needed like three more minutes of light or him to take three more steps. Um, just couldn't get a shot at him, uh, before it got too dark. Um, uh, I have, uh, you know, I had one buck, uh, from 2011, uh, starting in that range. I have three years worth of sheds off of him. He would have, uh, he would have pushed pretty close to 150, if not over 150, um, you know, before, uh, you know, um, some sort of, you know, he, he, he met his demise somehow. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, he did get injured at one point and, and kind of, grew out a, uh, pretty, um, uh, non-typical, uh, set of sheds, um, or a set of antlers, which I found, I found his, uh, his set of sheds from that year. So I don't know if that injury ultimately took him down. He would, he would have been going into his sixth year. Um, you know, it's possible they're out there. They exist. I mean, even in high pressure states like Pennsylvania and, and Michigan, New York and, and, uh, you know, other, other states with pretty high, um, you know, hundred densities. Um, they exist. They're out there. 
Um, they do, <laughs> they do make it through. We got to give them, you know, a little more credit, uh, than I think a lot of times we do. Um, and, uh, you know, you just, you just, uh, give them an opportunity. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they take advantage of it. And, and, uh, if you're, uh, out there and you got a small piece of property and, um, you know, you, it's not something to be overlooked. Um, if you, if you own it or have the type of permission to, to make, you know, some, some habitat improvements and manipulations on it, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it because, um, you know, you, you could be putting your, setting yourself up for an opportunity at, uh, you know, um, some of the best bucks in your area. All it takes cool. is a couple of acres. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate your time tonight and uh, doing the interview and, and sharing your knowledge with listeners. And uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there listening that have a small parcel that can, uh, you know, use the information you provided and, and hopefully uh, provide themselves with a better hunting opportunity in the future. So I appreciate you doing the interview. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yep. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. It was great having Philip on the show today. Uh, he knows his stuff when it comes to uh, pulling in big bucks from neighboring properties onto smaller parcels. And there's lots of us out there, including myself, who hunt on small parcels. So if you're out there today uh, listening to this, hopefully uh, Phil gives you a little bit of hope as to what can be accomplished on a smaller parcel. Uh, next week, we're going to have Tracker John on the show. He's going to talk about a couple of the monster bucks he found this year. Tracker John is probably one of the best-known blood trackers in the outdoor industry today. He uses bloodhounds. Uh, until next week, uh, you can learn more about me by visiting tracybreen.com. Uh, have a great day, and good luck hunting if you're still out there chasing chasing critters. <laughs>